I want to have you turn in, uh, to the book of Acts. We're going to continue our study there. I've entitled the message this morning, The Transformed Life. We're looking at the Apostle Paul, who in the first uh, segment of chapter 9 has had his Damascus Road conversion experience. It's been v- very powerful. It's been life-changing. And uh, now we're going to pick up the text in the second part of verse 19, where we begin to see some of the effects of this conversion experience on the life of, of a man named Saul. So we're reading in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Night and day, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Father, we want to thank you for your your word this morning, and God, we're so grateful for the privilege it is for us to study it. I mean, I've studied this all week, and I've prepared, and I taught this last night, and I'm so excited about sharing it again, because I want to grow. I want to change. I want it to challenge my life. And Father, I pray that we'd all come as students today with a hunger for transformation, with a hunger for a radical change, to be followers of Christ, indeed in action in every part of our lives, Father. So we're asking that you would lead and orchestrate and divinely supersede everything and that your ways would be known, God, that your word would go out and that we would be transformed. Take my mouth and my preparation and use them to bring honor to the King. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Saul's conversion in the book of Acts is, without question, one of the most dramatic and radical transformations of a man or woman's life that we have recorded, really, in the entire Bible. And it wasn't temporary, it wasn't superficial, it wasn't shallow. It was deep, it was lasting, and it was life-changing for the Apostle Paul. One moment, he's persecuting the church. The next, he's fellowshipping with the saints. One moment, he's opposing Jesus. The next moment, he's preaching Jesus. One moment, he's seeking to stamp out the gospel. The next moment, he's promoting the gospel. One moment, he's inflicting pain and punishment on the followers of Christ. And the next moment, he is being pursued and persecuted himself for the sake of Jesus the Messiah. I think that the Christian life is really designed to be lived in that kind of a radical way. The Christian life was meant to be radical. It was meant to be uh, a revolution. 
It's miraculous, it's dramatic, it's a reversal of everything that we believe and everything that we lived at one time, and it moves in a whole new direction. That is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. That, I believe, is what the normative Christian life is. It's a radical transformation of a man or woman who is actually following Christ. But if you've been observant and watched other people or even examined your own life, sometimes our lives aren't quite so radical a transformation. And my whole message and the whole thrust of what I want to communicate to you today is that God's purpose and plan is that you experience a radical transformation. You may, not, never, you may never have a Damascus Road experience. You may never have uh, God himself reveal himself with a blinding flash of light and a voice from heaven. But the transformation that was a part of Saul's life, I believe, is normative for the Christian life. I think it's abnormal that a man or woman doesn't change when they come to Christ. There's something wrong when a man or woman isn't different radically different after coming to Christ. And on a daily basis, continuing to change, it's like the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. It should be obvious. It should be something that anyone can observe and see that there is a, there's a big difference in a person's life. But it's not always that way. And most of the time, it's just because we kind of put a cap on what God wants to do. We say, that's far enough. I'm not going any farther. Reminds me of a story of a man that went to see his, his physician. He wasn't feeling well. He was getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and he couldn't figure out what was wrong. He goes to the doctor, has a complete physical. The doctor sits him down and spends a couple of hours with him just because he wants to make sure he's got this right, figures out what all the factors are. He doesn't want to just give the guy medicine, wants to figure out what's the source, what's the cause, what does this man need to do? And his diagnosis is, is you're stressed. You need to slow down. You need to completely change your lifestyle. So he says, you've got to change your diet, you know? You need to talk with your wife and ask if she can completely reformat your diet to more vegetables, greens, you know, cut the fat, cut the sugar, cut all that. You need to rest. If, if you, if, do you have kids? Yeah, I've got like a bunch of kids. And he says, well, you need to ask your wife to take the load off and you need to, you know, have more time, you know, kind of getting out, doing some hobbies, walking, relaxing. You know, you need to have your wife just really take good care of you. So, and the guy's just thinking, hey, that sounds all great. Would you mind calling my wife? And maybe from your official standpoint as a doctor, she'll receive it a little better from you than she might from me. So the doctor says, sure, I'd be happy to. But he says, if you don't do something, you're going to be dead in 30 days. I mean, this is serious. So the doctor calls the wife, and the man goes home, and he's greeted by his wife at the door. She rushes out, and she says, oh, you poor dear. The doctor just called, and she says, he says, you only have 30 days to live. Okay. Thank you. That's pity laughing. I can hear it. I know. I'm, 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 I'm not an idiot. Okay, so the thing is, is that, that this woman, the, the thing is, I'm just not going to change. I just don't want to change. I want to I propose to you that the biggest reason why Christians don't experience the powerful, radical transformation that God designs and I think is normative in the Bible is because we just basically say the patient's going to die. I'm not going any farther. I mean, we kind of make a, a negotiated deal with God. Lord, I, I'm willing to do this and I'm willing to do this, but I'm not going to give that up. And don't expect me to go there. And I'm not going to talk out loud about your name in certain situations. Just don't put me in that situation. And I'm not about to change with my spouse. You know I've got this, this, this problem and I, you know I'm angry or you know I'm uh, a nag or you know that you know, I've, I've just got this background of all these problems and you know how my husband's hurt me or you know how my wife has hurt me. And I'm just 
just not going to change. That's just not negotiable. Now, Lord, having said all that, I surrender all. You know, whatever you want to do with my life, you know, as long as the, the terms are, are clear, I just want to give everything to you. And we can't figure out why we don't experience transformation. This text is going to teach us how we can experience it. And I want to invite you into it. And the reason I want to invite you into it is because it's God's plan for your life. It's God's will for your life. It's God's design for your life. And only when we're walking in God's plan, God's will, God's design, are we going to experience the life he's ex he has really planned for us. And only when we're experiencing that life are we going to experience the joy. All the things, all the negotiated plans that we've got, whether they're conscious or unconscious, all those things actually get in the way of life in Christ. And so I want to invite you to transformation this morning. I want to invite you to consider the life of Saul, whose life was radically changed as a result of coming to Christ. I want to review briefly from uh, Acts 9, verses 17 and 18, because we find in that text that uh, the events of Saul's conversion, his sight was restored, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was baptized, and then he spent several days with the disciples in fellowship. And I, I want to just point out here briefly that um, one of the first things that Saul does after identifying himself with Christ through baptism is he identifies himself with the church in fellowship. That is one of the most obvious and normative parts of the Christian life when somebody is truly born again is they want to be in fellowship. That is one of the identifying factors of a truly transformed man or woman. They want the church. They want to be around other people that are walking with the Lord. They want to grow. They want to worship. And so I want to share with you one thing that happens to all of us at one time or another is that we don't want that. I'm, I, I'm not the only one. There are times I don't want to come to church on Sunday. There are times I just would rather be in bed or go surfing. That's the honest truth. But the times I'm feeling that way is during times of spiritual warfare or where something is desperately wrong with my heart where I stop being transformed by God. And so it's a little warning light on the dashboard of your life saying something's not right. Come back to God. Come back to the life that he's called you to because when you're in that place of transformation, a normal desire will be for fellowship. And we find Paul fellowshipping with the disciples in verse 19. Now, verse 20 tells us something interesting about the fruit of Paul's conversion. He acted on his calling immediately. The Greek word means without delay. It means right away, nothing held back. Years ago, I came across a quote by Thomas Akempis that's been really um, transformational in my own walk. It's been a very powerful reminder about what the Christian life really is. He said, instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's where we put up these parameters and say, not any further. Don't, you know, don't try to encroach on my throne. You've got your little place in my life. Now stay there. But we have these dominating issues in our life where we just say, this far and no farther. But Paul was not such a man. He said, Immediately, he began to preach the Bible. He began to preach the Word of God. He began to preach Christ. Why? I think there's a clue in Psalm 119, verse 32. It's because Paul's heart was set free. It's because Paul experienced such an incredible encounter with Christ and understood the freedom that he had in Christ in the gospel that he wanted to follow Christ. Listen to what Psalm 119, 32 says. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. That, that's the heart. 
running, not, you know, dragging your feet, not, you know, with your heels dug in, you know, with the choke, you know, the whole way, nothing like that. But we're, we're running in the path of God's command. Why? Because he set us free. That's the Christian life. That's the transformed life. And so we fall, find Paul right out of the gate. He's immediately responding to the call of God, immediately doing the will of God, immediately re, just yielding himself to God. Now, I have to say, we've got to back up a little bit and look at the life of Paul. This is the man that was convinced for the better part of his life. He's, he's over 30 now. He might be 35, 36, somewhere in there. We're not quite sure. But he's in his mid-30s. And he spent his whole life denying Christ, rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus, persecuting the church. And he has an encounter with Christ. And on a dime, he spins the other direction and says, I was wrong. I have been wrong. Boy, those are, those are words that uh, are hard to say for people. Hard to say them to your spouse. Hard to say them to your boss. Hard to say them to your mom and dad or your family. And those words, I was wrong, I've sinned, will you forgive me? All of that, those words that deal with reconciliation, when they're not spoken, are us drawing a line in the sand and say, this far and no farther. I will not immediately obey in this arena. I may be wrong, but I'm not about to, to grovel. I'm not about to come back and make this right. I'm not about to pursue a true reconciliation in whatever situation it is. But Paul was not like that. I admire this man. It's kind of a hidden part of this text that's not really spoken of directly. But Paul, with all that investment, all that history, all of that power, all of that influence, all of the future that he had moving in this direction, when he understood the truth, he left it all and immediately began following Christ, began doing the will of God. And he began to preach that Jesus was the Son of God. This is a reference to his incarnation, by the way, not a reference to an inferior rank to God. Some people think because it's the Son of God that he is somehow not God, not true. The only time that Jesus is ever referred to as the Son of God has to do with his incarnation, becoming flesh, coming to earth. That's the only time. But it was a messianic designation. It was a messianic title. In fact, Jesus was called the Son of God over and over and over. Gabriel used that when he was speaking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, the Father uh, used it at Jesus' baptism. Here's my son. Uh, Peter used it when he confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. The demons used it of him, calling him the Son of God. The centurion at his crucifixion said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The Jewish leaders, in their conviction and crucifixion of Christ, used this title, Son of God, as the basis upon which they murdered the Messiah for blasphemy. Well, the people were so blown away, we're told in the, in the verse uh, 20, that they were astonished at the transformation. They were amazed. It actually means in the Greek to be out of one's mind. In other words, they could not wrap their brain around what they were observing. They couldn't get it. It didn't make sense. Isn't this the man that came here to arrest the Jews? Isn't this the man that has spent his life persecuting the way, the Christians, trying to eradicate what he believed was a cult from the face of the earth? They found it so hard to believe that they couldn't accept it that a man could be transformed in such a condensed period of time. The question is, how does this kind of transformation happen? How can a man or a woman go from one direction to another direction so radically that people are completely astonished? They can't get their arms around the concept. Well, years later, Paul would actually write the reason why in 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's his, that's his description. That's his explanation for this radical transformation. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone's born again, if anyone believes in Jesus, if anyone is forgiven of their sin, if anyone becomes an adopted son or daughter in the kingdom of God, if anyone sets their heart on pilgrimage, that woman, that man is brand new. And the old is gone and now the new has come. And the Bible tells us in verse 22 that Paul or Saul at the time grew more and more powerful in his walk with the Lord, in his testimony, in his love relationship with God. The question I thought of is, how can a man or woman today become more powerful? How can you grow today in this transformation? Well, I was looking up different verses that deal with strengthening and power as it relates to activity that generates that kind of a result. And these are some verses I came across. Romans 4.20, through the knowledge of God's word and trusting in that promise, in those promises, you will be strengthened in your faith. Acts 1.8, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who came to give us power. James 1.2 through 4, through times of testing, you will learn how to persevere and how to be a man or woman who's mature and complete, not lacking anything in your walk with God. Colossians 2 tells us it's through dependence upon Christ and Hebrews 13 says it's dependence and reliance on the grace of God. These things all lend themselves to growing in power. But so much so that as Paul was speaking or Saul was speaking, he baffled the Jews in Damascus because they just couldn't stand up to the wisdom and the logic and the prophecies and the teachings from the Old Testament. It was the same problem the Sanhedrin had with Stephen just before they stoned him. And Saul was proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Remember when his eyes were opened? The scales fell from his eyes. That wasn't just a physical event. That was a spiritual event too. And for the first time, Saul, who knew the Old Testament, who knew Moses, who knew the law, who knew the histor historical books, who knew the prophetical books, who knew the poetical books, who knew the entire Old Testament, for the first time began to see Jesus on every page. There was Jesus in the writings of Moses. There he was in the law. There he was in the temple worship. There he was in the sacrifices. There he was in God's work with Israel. There he was in the poetical books. There he was in the prophecies. And now Paul's eyes were open for the first time he could really see, and he began to see Jesus. And he began to proclaim him with such power that the Jews in Damascus began to pursue his life. And so we find that Paul was in danger in verse 23 through 25, where we have a description of their conspiracy to kill him. This isn't the first time, by the way, and it's not going to be the last time that Paul's life is threatened. We find at least four, and there are actually more than that, but at least four recorded, credible, specific attempts on Saul's life in the book of Acts. In Acts 14, the Jewish leaders at Iconium tried to kill him. In Acts 20, the Jews in Greece plotted his death. In Acts 23, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem conspired to kill Paul. In Acts 25, 3, the, the Jews of the Sanhedrin again plotted to kill his life. So here we have the great persecutor who has now become the persecuted. And it's exactly what Jesus predicted, prophesying over him, is that I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Later in Paul's writings to Timothy, he said, anyone that really truly wants to live this transformed life will be persecuted. These are Paul's words. He says, if you really are living this radical, not, see, I think sometimes we do it in degrees. 
I, I'll share just briefly with you that when I came to Christ, I didn't want to make too much of a splash. I mean, there was this thing going on inside of me that was just powerful. I felt this intense love. I felt forgiven. I wanted to run on my campus at Punahou, and I just wanted to scream at the top of my lungs, I got saved. I got forgiven of my sins. I've got this overwhelming love for all of you. But, you know, I'm 17, so what do I do? It's like... I got this little secret going on in my heart, you know, because I don't want to look too radical. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to be looking too transformed. I don't want to make a big splash. I'm a, I'm a high schooler. But that wasn't Paul's heart. Now, part of it is he's an older man, but, but still there's this sense that still, I think, resides in all of our hearts is that we don't want to be too splashy. Are you following me? Aren't you a little bit like that? You don't really want to tell people quite how radical it is. I mean, you have a really good quiet time in the morning and you're just overflowing on the inside and people say, how are you? And it's like, I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. But inside we're saying, I want to tell you all kinds of things, but I'm afraid of your rejection, so I'm not going to say much right now. I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to suppress this transformation. And what Paul refused to do was to suppress the transformation. I think that's normative. I think it's abnormal to suppress it. I, from a human standpoint, it's completely normal, but spiritually, it's abnormal to suppress the transformation. And Paul wasn't willing, and the result was is that he was persecuted, and he said, everyone who wants to live this kind of godly, transformed, radical life will be persecuted. Well, we find what happened to him. He fled in the night. His disciples, having been there for quite some time teaching and leading people to Christ, they lowered him through a window in the wall of the city because the gates were being watched. They were plotting to kill him. And so here's this great apostle. I mean, you've got to remember where Paul comes from. He's in the Sanhedrin. It's the highest office that you can have in, in the entire nation of Israel outside of being the king. He is being groomed probably for the priesthood in terms of being the chief priest. He is the one that's spearheading the, this, what he thought was a courageous act of, of stamping out this cult he, he is the, the forerunner for the more timid members of the Sanhedrin. He's the guy that's going out and doing all this stuff. The guy has just got guts. He is the guy that when people, when he walked into town, people were like, it's Saul. It's got the flat, the, the nice robes. He's walking along. He's got the entourage. And now he finds himself lowered in a basket, like a bag of groceries from the wall. Are you, are you kind of thinking what's going through Paul's mind at this time? I mean, if I were the apostle Saul or Paul, I'd be thinking to myself, what has my life come to? I'm being lowered in a basket through a city wall. I got people that want my life. I got to run off into the darkness and I don't even know where I'm going. This is what his life had become. I, I like what, uh, what Paul actually writes later in his writings about this account. In 2 Corinthians 11, he's talking about boasting and the inappropriateness of, of a man or woman to ever boast about anything. But he says, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about my weakness. And you know what he brings up as an illustration? this experience. And he goes on to tell of this account of, of how this king, Aretas, was trying to kill him and how the walls were the only escape and how he got lowered in a basket. And so in essence, he's saying, I got, I mean, how low can you go? I mean, this is what, what Saul is saying. This is as bad as it gets. And I want to boast in that humility because I find that when I'm boasting in that, the power of God is magnified in my life. So he says, I'd rather boast in weakness that God might be magnified. And so we find this man who had every reason to not turn from this lifestyle, every reason to keep going, even if he thought maybe he was wrong, but he didn't. He recognized the truth 
when he was confronted with his sin, he repented immediately on the spot and he changed course and he did a complete 180, a radical transformation so much so that people couldn't get their, their arms around what had happened in his life. Well, we find that after he fled, he went to Jerusalem. Verse 26, well, it didn't get any better there because the disciples rejected him. They couldn't get their minds wrapped around that transformation either. This is how radical it was. Uh, there's a part of me, I'm thinking, what's, what's with these guys? Why don't they trust the work of God? Why don't they just respond to what God was doing? They obviously heard the testimony about what Saul was doing in Damascus and preaching the gospel. Why didn't they get it? Well, you have to remember that for them, Saul was a terrorist. He had personally been responsible for the imprisonment and death of their own family members, of their church members, of their extended family of their co-workers, of their, their fellow community members of the kingdom of God. And so they doubted the authenticity of his conversion until a man named Barnabas came along in verse 27. I love Barnabas. He was a Levite from Cyprus. We know that from Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We also know that he was Christ-like in his love for all kinds of people. It wasn't just Saul but I like what Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 about love. He said, love believes all things. And Barnabas believed what happened to Saul. Boy, you know, all of us need someone like that in our life, don't we? Somebody that believes in us, in the work of God in our life. Somebody that will inspire us and encourage us. Someone that will come alongside and say, when it doesn't look good, I'm with you. I'm with you. And Barnabas was a man like that. In fact, his name uh, really means son of encouragement. That's Bar-Nabas. Bar means son of, and Nabas is encouragement or comfort or exhortation. And you know, it's an amazing thing. He used his gift of the Holy Spirit so prolifically, so consistently, so diligently, so effectively that they changed his name from his given name to Mr. Encouragement. That's what it is. It's like, here comes Mr. Encouragement. There he is again, you know. I mean, everybody wanted to be around him because you get kind of built up when you're in his presence. That's the kind of man that Barnabas was. And his name was actually changed because of this work of God in his life. And my question to you as a church and my, my encouragement to you as a church is that every one of us have been given gifts of the Holy Spirit and we should be using them in such prolific, such effective and diligent manner that people around us begin to identify us, not just with our given name, but with the gifting that God has given us. And I see that in so many of you. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm looking at many of you and I'm thinking, I know what your gifts are and I can see it in your life and I get inspired, I get built up. That's part of the reason. I mean, I'm the pastor. I love coming to church. And it's not because I get to talk because I'd be, actually, I'd be so happy if I didn't have to. I don't need to speak. I don't need to preach. That's not my identity. I come to church because I love being with you guys because there's something that you offer me because of the work of God in and through you that builds me up in my walk with the Lord for that transformation that I know he wants to, to produce. And so I come because I enjoy you. I enjoy worshiping God. I love hearing the word. Even as I teach, I'm being taught. I get encouraged. I get challenged. I get corrected. But this is what the Christian life is supposed to be like. And all of us have something to offer. Every one of you has got a gift. And I'm encouraging you, exhorting you today. If you don't know what it is, find out. Come and see me. Talk to people around you. Ask them, what's my gift? They'll tell you. And begin to use it in large doses everywhere you go. And let it just be out there on the forefront, even in your workplace. Just use your gifts so that even unbelievers are able to identify you 
by those gifts things that God has given you. That's the kind of mar- man Barnabas was. And so he was rejected by the believers, but, but uh, Barnabas stepped in and basically testified of Paul's conversion and of Paul's fearless preaching of the word. And we find in verse 28 that he stayed with the disciples in Jerusalem for about 15 days, and he spoke, spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. And the result, as so often with Paul in verse 29, is the Grecian Jews wanted to kill him. Just like everywhere he went, you teach the life-transforming power of God, and people want to kill you. Now, the question is, why would anyone want to kill someone who's teaching the truth? Why would anyone be motivated to destroy another person's life and message that is freedom? Well, for the same reason that they crucified Christ, for the same reason that they stoned Stephen. Number one is they couldn't stand up to the logic and the power of the argument that was being produced by these men. Number two, they were terrified, and this is a big one, of losing their position and their power and their influence in their community. And number three is they were jealous. They were envious and jealous. It comes up over and over again in the New Testament. The Sanhedrin, the Jews, the the teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, it says they were envious. They were jealous because of this incredible, powerful movement of God in the New Testament church. Here's something I want to just comment on that briefly. Because we're aiming at transformation. That's God's will for us. That's life for us. It's not bad. It's good. It's everything you want, but it's everything that we're afraid of. These Grecian Jews were afraid. They were afraid. They were afraid they'd lose their power. They were afraid they'd lose their identity. They were ashamed that they lost the biblical argument, the scriptural argument with Saul. And so rather than being persuaded like Saul was and making a complete change and say, gee, I've been wrong all this time. You're right. I can't refute what you're saying. You're right. I've got to make a change in my life. That's what Saul did, but not the Grecian Jews. They refused. They said, we are going to eliminate the argument. We're going to eliminate you. Here's the application for our lives. God has put people in your life that know all kinds of information about you that would be so helpful if you would respond. Your spouse is one. But a lot of people don't want to listen to their spouse. The wife says, honey, this is a problem. You keep doing this. And, and, and the guy knows he's going in the wrong direction. He's hearing it. It's irre- irrefutable evidence that he's doing the wrong thing. He knows it, but he refuses to turn. Why? Because he just doesn't want to be wrong. Doesn't want to change. He's like the woman that says, hey, to the husband, 30 days, you're dead because I'm not changing. I'm not going to make those adjustments in my life. How about the, the wife that won't change, that's just entrenched, that is confronted on some issues, and she just says, I'm not going there. I'm not changing. I'm going I'm to make life miserable for you and everybody else, but I'm not moving. I'm not changing. Life has to spin around me. The result is a lack of transformation, and it's a punishment on that person's life themselves. They don't realize it, but they're damaging their, themselves. They're damaging everything God wants to do. So here's the thing, is that you've got people with enough information about you to be transformed in days, in minutes, in moments, if you want it. And you have to make a decision every day if you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, this is my little box. I'm happy with my Christian life. I don't really like my husband. I don't get along with my friends. I've got this problem with that person. I'm not going to change. I know I've got these habits. I know I'm addicted to this and that and the other thing. I know I'm on internet doing the wrong things. I know I try to control and usurp authority in the home. I know I do these things. I know that, but this is just the way I am. I grew up that way. I'm not changing. And now, God, everything is for you. Everything that's left is yours. 
And when we live that kind of a life, we destroy what God intended to be the experience of the abundant life. It's such a trap. And it was a trap the Grecian Jews fell into. And it's a trap I'm exhorting you not to bite into, not to fall for. Every one of us, the message should be to our family, to our spouse, to people close to us is, if you see something, please tell me. I want to know. And if I don't listen the first time, then please tell me again. And if I don't listen the, the second time, please tell me again. I do want to be transformed. I want to be like Christ. That's God's goal for us. The resources for that transformation are obviously God, but he's also given you the, all the information you'll ever need is right sitting next to you in most cases. It's right there. And it's a travesty when the person or the people in your life are afraid to tell you because you have drawn a line in the sand. No more transformation for you. That's it. It's a choice. And so it was a choice that the, uh, the Grecian Jews made by rejecting the message and pursuing the death of Saul. Well, Saul left and fled to Tarsus. And we find in uh, verse 31 that we're told that the church enjoyed a time of peace as a result of, of Saul's conversion. But it's more than that. There were geopolitical factors that were taking place at the same time as well in the region. But the Bible says that after Saul left that area, everything seemed to kind of quiet down. I mean, this guy was like, everywhere he went, it was like things got stirred up. That's kind of what the Christian life should be like. Not that we're causing problems, but that we're laying it out there so clearly for people that we're not trying to suppress it. We're not trying to calm it down because we don't want to look too foolish or too, too Jesus freakish or anything like that. So we try to calm it down and suppress it. No, Paul didn't do that. And because of that, things were stirred up. People came to Christ and people opposed him. That's always going to be the result whenever a man or woman lives the transformed life for Christ. It was also, uh, the church was also strengthened. It's interesting, the word is oikodomeo. Oikos means house, and domeo has to do with building up or constructing. So you're building a house. A lot of that going on in the island right now. But what we're doing in the body of Christ is the church itself builds itself up in love. We're called to be built up in our walk with God. Why? Because we're in a battle. We need to be building each other up. We need to be using the gifts. There are several things that the Bible teaches about how the church is to be built up. One is through the giftings of the apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and leaders and all these things that, uh, that Chuck uh, mentioned earlier as he read the scripture, or actually Carol read that. And so God has provided those different giftings in the church so that the word of God can be taught, so that men and women can be discipled, so that they can be built up brick by brick by brick by brick. We're growing in our walk with God. But it's not just up to other people. The Bible also says in Jude uh, chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, verse 20, that you are to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So there's an issue of personal maintenance in that strengthening, is that every one of us have an obligation before God to be in the word of God, to be praying, to be putting bricks in our spiritual wall of growth so that we're being strengthened in our walk with the Lord. Uh, so strengthened in that whole concept of our walk with God, we need to be adding to that on a regular basis. We can't lean on one service a week. We need to be really moving in our own walk with the Lord. Another way that we can be built up is through the participation of every member in the ministry of the church, and that's from uh, 1 Corinthians 14. And through the use of spiritual gifts, again, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. And also, finally, through Ephesians 4, 29, through godly, encouraging, uplifting, edifying communication. Just using our, our mouth to help each other grow, to inspire, to pray for, to empathize with, to, to grow with. 
And so we are a body here at this church, not just a bunch of individuals. And we need everybody here. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever really communicated this that clearly to you except for just a few minutes ago, but I want to tell you something again. I need you. Not to be here at church, not to fill a chair, not because of tithing or anything that. I need you because God has placed me in this church. And I need your gifts. I need your inspiration. I need your modeling. I need all those things. And we need that from each other. We need the encouragement. We need the times when we're down. And some of you right now are like this and you're just discouraged. You got a lot going on. You need the church. You need to be prayed for. You need to be upheld by other people. And we are a church that wants to live that kind of a life. We want to be transformed. And we want you to be transformed. We want the glory of God. I want every man and woman here to become like Christ. That's my objective because it's the objective of Jesus Christ in the word of God is that you would be like his son. And so the church was strengthened during this time of peace and it was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says finally that it grew in numbers and in the fear of the Lord. Now, I find it interesting that so often churches and pastors are aiming at growth. In fact, there are so many seminars that are available today both online and in book form, as well as uh, the actual physical seminar that you can attend on how to grow a church. And, you know, you're there for like a week, and they give you all the resources and the strategies and the plan, and you scope it out, and then you dream a dream, and then make it bigger, and then everybody else helps you make it bigger than that, and, you know, it goes on and on. But that is contrary to what the Bible teaches is God's method for growing a church. Here's God's method. Don't even worry about numbers. Don't even think about numbers. Don't count heads. Don't, don't do any of that. God's plan is build up the people and then growth will occur. Edify and the result will be multiplication. That's God's plan. It's so simple and it never will change. So my job, our job here as a church is not to worry about being a big church. Our job is simply to leave that in God's hands. And our job, my job, our job collectively is to build up the church. And so this is a mandate, not just for a few people, not just if you're a leader, not just if you have a title in the church, but this is a mandate for every man and woman here is that you be involved in building up the church. That's the calling. Now, again, you can draw the line in the sand and say, I'm not really interested in going that far with this thing. Well, then, then don't be transformed. Live that kind of a, of a partial commitment. Live that kind of a, of a half-in, half-out kind of a lifestyle. And I'm, I'm telling you these things because I love you. I'm telling it because it's from the scriptures. I'm telling because I want you to be transformed. Why? Because I want you to experience what Paul experienced. I want you to experience what, what, what people couldn't even wrap their arms around. I want you to experience what God has planned for your life. And it's not going to happen if we try to be incremental and safe. It's just not going to happen. God is just asking us to jump into the stream. He wants us to jump in. I like what Bruce was saying. I don't, talking about the rivers on the island and just there's, even in Ezekiel, it talks about it. It's like it's a, it's a river. It's a deep stream who makes glad the city of God. And Jesus today is inviting us into it. He's saying, jump in. It requires immediate obedience. That's really the message that I want to leave you with this morning is that God is looking for men and women whose hearts are totally devoted to him, whose hearts are willing to say yes unconditionally. Yes, without reservation. Yes, without negotiation. And say, Lord, all is yours. All I surrender. All I yield. 
I don't know what the future holds. I might be lowered in a basket from a wall. I might be humiliated. I might go through difficulties. But nonetheless, I surrender all. That's the calling. And that's the only path for the abundant life, for the transformed life, for the miraculous life that God has planned for those that call on his name. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And Lord, I just, I love the people here. And I, I, I know it's not me. I know it's your work in me. You've planted that in me. I love fellowshipping with the saints. I enjoy them. We enjoy each other. God, I find it such a privilege to come week by week and spend time during the week with each other and discipling and worshiping and praying together, encouraging each other with phone calls and just being friends. And Lord, we're coming together collectively and saying, God, we want to be transformed. God, we don't want to live safe kind of um, uh, lives with boundaries about what we're willing to do or not willing to do. God, we, we want to give ourselves afresh to you. And as we're praying, I just want to ask if there's anyone here today that possibly you've never received Christ before, you, you, you need a transformation. You need something radical that your, your mom and dad couldn't even wrap their arms around. They're going to come home and you're going to be a different person and you need that kind of a change or your family or your wife or your husband or your coworkers. You need something radical. You have tried incrementally to solve your problems and have not succeeded and you want Christ. The Bible says simply come to him, receive his forgiveness, receive his life, receive his power and it's simply just opening your heart to him if you've never done that before, if you've never asked Christ into your heart and you want to today, I just want you to raise your hand right where you are. Just slip it up. I want to see your hand. Is there anyone today you've never received Christ, but you would like to today, and it would be a first-time commitment to Christ? Okay, anybody here? I don't see any hands, which is fine. Just trusting that, that uh, is he, has he received Christ before? No? This is the first time? Okay, we got a young man over there that wants to receive the Lord. Awesome. That's exciting. Father, we just pray for this. Um, we just pray for this young man, Lord, and we thank you for his life. And, and God, we want to pray with him afterwards. But Father, we thank you for touching his heart to receive you as a Savior. How about the rest of us that are believers? Are you ready for a transformation? Are you kind of tired of playing it safe? You want to get way out on the edge? If you do, just stand up. I want to pray for you. Don't do it. Don't stand up if that's not what God is doing in your life. And there are probably many of you already living that life already. But if God has done something in your life and you want to get out on the, out on the edge, kind of get out of the boat and walk on water with God in a transformed life, then just stand where you are. I want to pray with you. Father, you see these men and women and I'm standing with them, God. We want to be transformed, God. We want, we want to forsake that, uh, that negotiation kind of a lifestyle. God, we want to give it up we want to be like Paul who, as soon as he understood the truth, radically changed and lived a new life and then spoke boldly. God, give us that kind of a life. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to live the Christian life in such a way that we are uh, really building up people around us, that we're building up people that are believers, that we're building up people that are unbelievers, that wherever we go, life comes. The fragrance of Christ comes. The joy of the Lord comes. And so God, here we are. We're not making any promises whatsoever. We can't even keep those promises. We're simply saying, God, we surrender to you and we give up and we say, Lord, make us new, transform us and change us into the image of your son. And we want to say thank you for your work today. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.